We've been talking about prayer for the last three weeks. And just so that things do not feel too subversive to you, too ethereal to you, I want to be very clear, which is not my strong suit. I have had one prevailing intention for the last three weeks when I've been preaching about prayer. It has been to get you to participate in prayer. I have tried and wanted to entice you, to compel you, to dangle a spiritual carrot in front of your nose, to urge you to ask and ask away of God. That's been my intention. That is the prevailing intention of this whole series, is to get you to deal with the God with whom you were made to deal. And prayer is one of the primary ways that we do that privately and together. Today we're hoping, I didn't succeed very well in the earlier service, so today instead of telling you what I'm planning to do, I'm telling you what I'm hoping to do. I come up here always with at least three hours worth of material, and then we'll see. But I'm hoping to talk a little bit about the kinds of things that that puzzle us when it comes to prayer, the the pummeling parts of it where we're we're expecting but not getting, where we we have these deprivations in our lives that seem so severe, these deficits that seem so colossal, And yet, nothing seems to be done about them. And so, I've turned to James 4 as a primary text because he addresses one of these such issues. And he says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask... You do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures, he says. Because if you're new to Christianity, God hates pleasure. Thank you for laughing. That was irony. God invented pleasure. So we need to understand this. What does he mean that God's not going to listen to certain kind of prayers because you're asking for stuff to spend on your pleasures? Well, maybe we'll get to that. And if we don't today, maybe we'll by January. What month is it? But before we would dive into the actual not answering of prayers, I just want to remind you yet again that one of the things that you have to believe... One of the things that there is a symphony of voices in the scriptures all in unison bearing witness to is that you live in a shepherded place called the earth. You live in a shepherded place. It's very important to realize this because you are going to be confronted with lack all the time. And we've said, if you lack, you should ask. You're going to be smack up against tragedy, trauma, crisis, aggravation, headaches, backaches, 
flat tires, bills to pay that you can't, tuition bills that are due, braces. What do you do about this? Anxieties, fears, sleeplessness. Well, James would start out by saying, you know, one of the things that happens in communities, one of the things that happens in houses, one of the things that happens between siblings and spouses and parents and children and bosses and coworkers and management and labor and countries, the governors and the governed, between people groups, between races, between nations, is that there is always intense battling going on. There's always desire. There's always envy and selfish ambition he speaks of earlier, which he calls earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. But that is the thing that actually makes our economy go, envy and selfish ambition. And so we have these things, we have these desires, and they're not weak. They're prevalent. They're powerful. They drive us. They scream in us. And something has to be done about them. And our first inclination is very often to figure out how we, forgetting for the moment that we live in a shepherded place, how do we get what we need and get what we want and get what we must have? And so we fight and we quarrel. And we criticize, and we judge, and we get on someone else's back, and we manipulate conversations. We try any way we can to work a lever against other people to get what we need because we forget that we are in a shepherded place. When we look at Jesus, when we look at Jesus' life, you see someone who realizes when he wakes up in the morning, retiring as he often did to lonely places. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he went to a solitary place to pray. You know, because he was mentally unstable. He didn't realize that grown-ups go out early in the morning to make work, to make money, to make the world go. He and his silly little messiah-ing got up early in the morning to go pray in the dark. And people came looking for him because there were needs to be met and there were solutions to be offered and there were sicknesses to be healed. And his disciples say, Where have you been? Everyone's looking for you. Why are you bonboning here in prayer? Because prayer isn't anything. Jesus, you know that. Bonhoeffer says the Bible never speaks an extraneous word. Which is to say, the Bible don't never put nothing in there that you don't need to know about. That's another way of saying extraneous. And so, the Bible don't never put nothing in there that you don't need to know about. And one of the things you need to know about is that the, the perfect image of God, the exact representation of God's being, the one we call Savior of the world, concluded... That the way to start a day, the way to enter into difficult situations. How come we couldn't drive that demon out? Oh, this kind can only come out by fasting and prayer. No, no, you don't understand. Jesus' prayer isn't anything. He's so silly. 
Before the salvation of the world, he's asking his disciples to watch and to pray with him. He thinks this is something. And he's the exact representation, the epitome of what a human's supposed to be. I think it's important to realize this. You've got to realize this. He thought he walked around in a world that was, as Dallas Lord said, God-bathed. It wasn't a world where God wasn't involved. He says, my father is always at work, even at this very moment. He's always at work. My, God, my father never stops working. So that's why Jesus prayed so much, because he needed direction, because he needed power, because he needed communion, because he knew he was meant to run off of his father. And if you're a human, and there, there's 17% of you in here who are not yet, but if you wish to be a human, you have to be in prayer. You're meant to run off of God. And it's very likely to be the case that what's going to happen when you run up against trouble, when you run up against things that you don't like, when you run up against the fact that someone else is getting what you think you should have got. Why did their wedding day get to be so pretty and mine's so rainy and cloudy? How come their pictures on pictures are so much more beautiful? Their pretend life is so much better than my pretend life. Well, that's wonderful that you got a new car. I'm so happy for you. I hope you die. <laughs> it's very easy when something is happening good for somebody else that you think should be happening to you. Because, see, that's your natural orientation, right? When other good things happen to other people, it's an occasion for you to be sad. That's what envy is. Their happiness makes you sad. Their sadness makes you, woohoo. I'm so terribly sorry you lost your job. You don't do that except in private. And it's easy when you get these troubles sometimes to shut off to God. To say, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. To fight, to quarrel, to criticize, to complain, to manipulate, to just work harder, to just redouble your efforts. I had the experience recently with my 2002 Toyota Camry with 250,000 miles, and I went to put gasoline in the gas tank. Now, I'm not a mechanical fella. Let's just get this straight. But I do understand how this whole situation is supposed to play out. You get what they call, I believe, technically speaking, the uh, gas gun? And you uh, shove it in the hole there, and you pull on the gas gun trigger. Am I getting these words right? And you pull on the gas gun trigger, and what's supposed to happen is a flood of petrol, as the Brits say, is supposed to come out of that gas gun into your tank. And, when it's, and you're supposed to be able to flick a little kickstand there, walk away and do your business, and then come back and not have to fiddle with any of it, because it'll just automatically shut off. But in my case, it took 42 minutes to put $6 of gas in there. Okay. It took three hours to do that. Click, click, one, one, click, one, one, click. After much cursing and prayer, (laughs) and mainly cursing, I thought I have to take this car into the shop. And, uh, you know, we've had situations before where things you didn't know even existed. One time a guy said, you know what, there's no problem, your sniffer's busted. Your sniffer, of course, the car's got a sniffer. His olfactory senses on this Buick are not working right. 
In this case, my shutoff valve was all locked up on me. Shutoff valve. It was shutting off prematurely. It was empty. It needed gas. And when it needed fuel the most, it was shutting off automatically. It was not receiving what it needed. So $7,000 later, I can now at least put fuel in in an efficient manner. I don't have to stand at the Mapco for three days. It only costs $300, but it's just such a bad $300 because you just, it just, just doesn't feel right. It's for the gas tank. There's not supposed to be anything wrong with the gas tank. Trouble. Desire can be so strong that it can make your shutoff valve shut off right when it needs to be opening up. Right when you need to be gassed up by God. Right when you need most to be interacting with God. When you most need to be reoriented with God. Trouble, desire, envy, your ambitions, your self-pity, your trouble. All of these things can make you shut off. Take matters into your own hands. I can kick the car. I can bang the car. I can spit on the car, but that's not going to fix the car. That car needs to run on gasoline, and you meant to run on God himself. But you really are. You're meant to run on him. And so, so much of what causes fights and quarrels among you in your home and in your family, these are all invitations. You do not have what you need or what you want or what you think you want because you don't ask God. So they're invitations. Don't shut off. Make sure your shut-off valve is working right. It should be opened up to God, and you should be seeking Him in the middle of these troubles. What you're going to realize is there are certain things that you'll never have and that the world will never be apart from you asking God. There are certain things you'll never have and that the world will never be apart from you asking God. This is how He has set it up to work. You have not because you ask not. So I urge you again this week, ask and ask away. And do not fill yourself with self-editing while you ask. I know that James says, and you do not have, because when you ask, you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend what you get on your pleasures as if James was a 21st century neurotic person who lived inside himself and only thought about his motives all the time. You know, ancient people weren't like us. The Apostle Paul did not have OCD. He was not constantly watching his own motivations. This is not what James is urging us to do, to constantly, when you pray, figure out if your motives are right. You know why? Because most of you would never pray for anything, because you never thought you did anything without a bad motive. Is this true? Most of the people I know in this church think that everything they do or are about to do is because of some bad motive or another. Because they don't believe in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They haven't learned to appropriate it yet. They don't believe that they, yeah, of course you've got bad motives going on all the time. Sultry motives, un, unkempt motives. But you also at the same time have the, the movement of God in you. Why not think about that? So don't self-edit. Trust God who's shepherding the universe. Trust God who decided to let little snails wear their house on their backs. 
and who breathed at the same time this mountain into existence, trust him to be smart enough to sort through whether he should say yes or whether he should say no to all the stuff you need to ask. You got trouble? You got desires? You got bitterness? You got anger? You got envy? Bring it all to him. Ask and ask away. You got to do something about this God. You got to do something about this God. I never tire of telling the story about Virginia Baird, who's our charismatic friend, who's now living by sight, not by faith. We had so many arguments, and then I just gave up. But she taught me so much about prayer and so much about our Lord. And one of the things she helped me with most is when I pray, to stop looking at myself when I pray. You can hear a thing like James, and you ask with wrong motives, and you can... You can pray and say, Oh Lord, I love you, Lord, because you heard my voice. Requoting the psalm. And then you can say, huh, Wait a second. Do I really love you? Maybe I don't really love you. It's quite possible that I hate you. Maybe I'm just using you. I probably just want your gifts and not you. And see what I'm doing is having a conversation to myself. Hold on a second, God. I'm probably deceiving myself. The heart's deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can understand it? And so then you just go off on this whole like crazy thing. Now, if you did that in real life while you were having a conversation with somebody, they would ask you why you had not taken your medication that day. Yet, we do it all the time. Stand outside ourselves and watch ourselves as if we're standing, walking alongside ourselves. This is not healthy. This is not right. This is not mental health. Prayer is a place where you can gain mental health. You know why? Here's what you do. You say, I am talking to God Therefore, I am not going to watch myself while I do it. I'm not going to edit my prayers on the fly. I am going to pour out my heart to him. I am going to talk to him. I'm going to fix on him. I do not have because I do not ask God. So I'm going to ask him. And he's the God who gives generously to all without finding fault. The God who is, his lead foot has been to say, ask and it will be given to you. Ask and your joy will be made complete. Ask anything in my name and it will be given to you. The Bible tells us to do this. It's so important. So just ask and ask away and don't self-edit. And if you're doing it right, if you're doing it right, at the end you will feel unburdened and not more burdened. Sometimes you have a litany. You do not have because you do not ask God. So you decide to start asking God and you, you, you let him know you've got an ingrown toenail and then you've got a flat tire that's got to be taken care of and you've got some bills coming up and then... Of course, your roommate uh, doesn't ever wear deodorant, and they really should. And then you're taking this class, and the teacher's clearly a moron. And it couldn't be you that's a moron, it's the teacher. And uh, you've got this boss, it's Michael Scott, it's constantly ruining your life. And so you start laying out these litany of things, all these sicknesses, all these things that are wrong in the world, and you just get, because you're rehearsing them, you just get more worried, more anxious, more heavy afterwards. You probably didn't do it right. Because what, one of the things that should happen when you're entrusting yourself to God, see, one of the things James envisions here is that when you're asking God what that is, is you're drawing near to him. You're submitting to his kingship. You're entrusting yourself and all these matters to him. So when you're really doing it right, what's going to happen is it's going to be like handing him a to-do list in a manner of speaking, and then say, now God has that. But see, what a lot of us do is we hand God a to-do list, and then we hand it to him, and then we decide to keep looking over his shoulder and making sure that we advise him on how he handle all of that. 
Oh, God, I don't think you understand. And God, who puzzles to himself, like, what do you think, when you're sleeping at night, how do you think the cosmos keeps on being held up? How does the sun figure out how to come up in the morning without your to-do list? How is it that your baby keeps breathing and that your eyes keep blinking? What are you doing to make that happen again? How did you make all this rain come? Tim Keller tells this great story of a woman who, in this congregation, said, I used to pray through my my prayer list, and I would get so anxious and so overwhelmed. And you know what I started to do is I took seriously your advice that said, here's what I ought to do first. I ought to spend some time adoring God. I ought to spend some time rehearsing who he is. I ought to spend some time remembering the prayers that he's answered before. And you know what happened? I started finding my confidence in him welling up. I started realizing who it is. I'm actually talking to the king of love, my shepherd is, whose goodness faileth never. I'm actually talking to the one who's able to do immeasurably more than I can ask or imagine, to the one who is the healer of the nations, who has propped himself up against the ruin of the world. I'm talking to the one who lives to make intercession for me. I'm talking to the one who lends us breath and in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'm talking to the one who calls things that are not as though they were and gives life to the dead. I am talking to somebody who can do something about it. And as you start to do that, you'll find confidence welling up within you so that you can actually hand things off to him. It's reorienting that way. If you have anything electronic in your house and you've ever called technical support, say you got Trenton Internet, which we used to have, and you call on their technical supports either in Mumbai or Alaska or somewhere. And uh, no, they're really, they're probably here, I think. Trenton, don't, don't farm it out. And I've learned something. Say, uh, yes, what seems to be the problem, sir? Um, I don't know, my internet's not working. And uh, they'll, here's what they'll say. Uh, did you cut it off? They don't say that. But that's, what the, that's, the, that's the main solution. Reboot it. Turn it off. Or cut it off. And then uh, tell you what do. Uh, turn it off, and then, uh, tell you what, wait 90 seconds, and then uh, turn it back on. And that nearly always fixes the problem. So I, and I, my infinite patience and wisdom as the tech support guy in our home, with all of our, which you realize how bad that is for our home, that I'm the tech support guy? When anything happens, we can't get the printer to work, we can't get this phone to work, we can't get this computer to work. Have you turned it off? That's what I say. Have you cut it off? Like I'm a genius. Like, give it to me. There. I turned it off and I waited 90 seconds and I gave it back to you and now it works. (laughs) Prayer is meant to be a reboot. Where you turn off all that you forgot. Because... 
This is, you're submitting yourselves to God. You're resisting the devil. You're coming near to God. You're saying, you're the one who gives grace to the humble. I am trying to humble myself. And what I've done accidentally in the course of 45 seconds or maybe 45 minutes or 45 days, I have totally forgotten who I am and whose planet I'm on. And so I need to reboot. I need to shut her down for a minute. And I need to just focus for a minute on who it is I'm talking to. God can do something about this. God has favorably disposed himself toward us. He is the giver. I'm looking for solutions. I've concluded that I know the solutions to my own problems. Why do I think I know that so well? I'm asking God. God, please. Give me a kale smoothie. I'm famished. And God may say, He doesn't really want a kale smoothie. Nobody wants a kale smoothie. (laughs) When were these humans learned? I didn't want anybody that is a human to eat kale. These are for animals that I don't like, so they will die. (laughs) He's asking for a kale smoothie. What he wants is a Frosty from Wendy's. (laughs) He wants a cookies and cream blizzard from Dairy Queen. He don't want no kale smoothie. See, sometimes you don't even know what you want. But you reboot and you say, You're the, you know my desires satisfy me in the morning with your unfailing love. Sometimes you don't even know what you want. You don't even know what you need. You presume you do. You're hanging on tight. Lord, I know what's got to happen here to fix me, to fix this world, to fix this situation. You think you know, but you don't know. So you submit yourself to God. You do a reboot. You reorient yourself to reality and say, God's really, really, really smart and really, really, really good. And he knows what I need. So why don't I just come near to him? Instead of expecting his gifts to give me all that I need, why don't I expect him to give me all the grace that I need to endure, to make it through, to be able to love better? Bill Hybel says one of the worst prayer stoppers for anybody is the prayer, the infamous prayer, for God to change your spouse. Lord, look at him. I mean, look at him. Change your mom, change your dad, change your boss. Now, it's fine to pray. It really is fine to pray. It's better than nagging. It's better than criticizing. It's better than condemning, which we all do to each other all the time. But he says, what if God wants you to change? What if God cares about who you become? Sometimes you want to spend what you get on your pleasures. You've got to get reoriented. You're thinking the world revolves around you. You're thinking that everything that happens is a slight against you. You're thinking that everyone you meet is a competitor against you. And God wants you to reorient, to reboot, to recognize you don't know what you want. You don't know what you need sometimes. But if you'll draw near to me, he gives grace to the humble. And he's not going to help you, adulterous people, just to be sweet. He's not going to help you cheat on him, just to use that language. He's not going to help you by if you have prayers that say, basically, God, will you fix my life in such a way that I will not ever need to talk to you or come to you anymore ever again? And that's a flat-out rejection. Stamp, no, declined. God isn't going to help you to cheat against him, to cheat on him. He wants your fidelity. He wants your nearness. He wants your dependence. 
And so he isn't going to listen if you ask him for things that are not going to be good for anyone, including you. I love it a few years ago when I was talking about church discipline to a group of kids. (laughs) I just thought that sounded funny. Talking about church discipline to a group of kids? Okay. It's like, I can't wait to excommunicate you little ones. But one kid, we were asking about discipline, and this boy said, sometimes when my daddy has to spank me, he starts to cry. And I was like, well, that's it. You just, you got it. You understand. Sometimes when my daddy needs to spank me, he starts to cry. That boy understood that there are times when your father has to do something or not do something. Has to answer yes or has to answer no. And it might even cause him great pain. But it's a pain that he's willing to endure because his love for you is bigger than the, than the pain. You're in a shepherded universe here with a God who wants you to pray, with a God who wants you to ask, with a God who wants you to trust. I'm closing with this. I still have four hours of material. There's a great story called Come Watch With Me that Wendell Berry wrote. And in it, a a demented man, a man with dementia named Thatcher, who they call Nightlife, is having an episode, a man is described as his head was full of the light of the whole community, but he had, a, he had a hole where the light would drain out. And he would become filled with a kind of a solitary darkness, be blanketed in this darkness and this aloneness. And one night he grabbed himself a shotgun from one of the men in the town's barns, and started making his way to the woods with nefarious intentions for himself. But he did not know that he was being followed. Being followed by Toll Proudfoot, a 300-pound man who wore his clothes violently. And was married to Miss Minnie. A group of men who thought, we care for this man and we cannot let him go. So they watched him. And they followed him through the woods for a day and for a night without food, without drink. They were exhausted, but they were watching. Watching this man who could not keep watch over himself. And when finally they were able to get the gun from him gently and and him start to come back into himself, there was an awkward moment and then they suddenly heard a dinner bell. Because Miss Minnie was feeling like she should do something and didn't know what to do, so she sent Josie Tom out to ring it. And when that dinner bell rang, old Toll Proudfoot says to the group of men around him who haven't eaten in a while, who've been traipsing through the woods in this, on the precipice of great danger that now is relieved. He says, boys, I believe our master and the good women have kept us in mind. Let's go eat. I believe that our master and the good women have kept us in mind. Let's go eat. We have certain things that will never happen to us or will never happen for our world if we do not ask. And we are a kept people. 
kept in mind by the shepherd of this planet who says, I'm the one who will feed you. I'm the one who will see you through the dark night. I'm the one. So come to me and get grace from me. Fuel. Gas. There you go. (laughs) The winds of the Spirit are about to blow the coverings off the... We have been kept in mind, and now we have opportunity to go and to eat. 